And I feel like I'm very proud of my Indian heritage, but I have no blindness towards its shadows. And I can take part in the culture and be part of the change in the culture, but I'm not going to be a defender of the culture. The Roadmap Back to You. Reshape your world from the inside out and find peace of mind. I think from our last conversation, we were moving into a very interesting dialogue. So (laughs) I felt it would be appropriate to just have you come back and share a little bit deeper about our own experiences um, with our shared cultural backgrounds. Um, So it's really nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you, Bobby, for inviting me back. We did, um, at the end of our last conversation, we did start venturing down some other avenues, you know, looking at our common cultural heritage and connecting over that. Over that, And yeah, we started discovering some, some areas that we wanted to delve deeper into. So I really appreciate you inviting me back and, and opening a new dialogue and conversation. Yeah, so... I mean, just for the listeners, just to share, you know, I I am an Indian and my parents were born in East Africa and I grew up in the UK and I was born in the UK. And Arthi, would you like to share a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. I mean, my parents uh, came from India. They came separately with their own families and they were married in the UK and I was born in the UK. So I was fully brought up in the UK as a, as an Indian. And what's really interesting is on my mother's side, my grandfather came from what became, you know, Pakistan after 1947, um, which has had a quite big influence on, on the generations, I would say, probably more unconscious than anything else. But, you know, that, that history is in our family, that raw, violent Punjabi partition in 1947. Yeah. Yeah. And from our last conversation, we mentioned a very strong word, misogyny, against Indian women. What What are your thoughts around this? Yeah, that is such a big word. It's such a big word. And, you know, it means hatred of women. And it can have all kinds of reactions in people. Yeah. So in some ways, we've got to be sensitive and tread a bit carefully around it. But, you know, we came, I came to that word many years ago after, you know, growing up, being born in the UK in a first generation Indian family with very much all my cousins and community around me in a very South Asian uh, community uh, in London. And, you know, just observing how, how the world was, you know, growing up as a brown Indian girl in a very white neighborhood, but enough people from our community and being kind of growing up between these two worlds of, you know, kind of English school and an Indian home. And what I noticed quite quickly in what was going on around me was that, you know, women and girls were being seen quite differently from boys. And it was during the eighties and I was, big time into like Bollywood films. And one of the things I would see regularly was in every Bollywood film, there was a, usually at least one rape scene. 
and uh, and inevitably the rape victim would commit suicide immediately after the rape and this was such a common part of the storyline in every you know in every film and i didn't really understand it and it wasn't until i grew a bit older that it was there was something to do with shame and that even though the man had committed the crime the woman would punish herself for being the victim of the crime and it was very strange i mean as a child when you see something like that you see someone doing something very bad and you see someone suffering very badly and instead of kind of feeling like she can go and get help she's actually vilified and hated and uh, even though this is an extreme thing because it was in the films but this was actually informing our culture and it was obviously informed by this indian culture that was kind of coming home to every day from school you know so it was very interesting i mean that's just one example i could go into many yeah this shame that you say i think from my experience as well it then becomes internalized and then we kind of carry i guess the wound from our ancestors is carrying this inherent shame well, shame is a really uh what I understand about shame is that it's a very social emotion. It's not personal. Uh it's obviously felt very personally, but it's about how you are perceived by others. And it's particularly about how you're perceived by your own community and your own group. And you know, traditionally in kind of South Asian culture, as far as I've experienced it and understood it, is that the honor of the family you know is very much sitting in the women of the family so the women are really held to uh, hold the honor by acting you know traditionally conservatively and according to very conservative rules um and if you step out of line that's when you attract shame it's the other side of the coin if you look at honor as one side of the coin shame is the other side and it's and 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 the way that the coin flips is whether or not you step outside of these very conservative boundaries. So, you know, from a young age it was about, you know, when I started growing up, especially once I turned into a teenager. As a child I was able to go out and play all the time. And as soon as I turned into a teenager or I got a bit older, I realized that some of my other, you know, Indian Asian girlfriends, my friends that were girls, you know, would stop being allowed out. to come out to play you know in the 80s we were still going out to play right in the park and i would go and knock on knock on my friends doors and their mum would let them out or their dad would let them out and then as soon as i don't know they'd start their period maybe um they weren't allowed out anymore and all of a sudden your freedom is curtailed because all of a sudden you're growing into a woman and so why can't i go out why can't my you know asian female friends go out because it's about honor what will people say if they see you out what will people say if they see you talking to a boy what will people say if they see you doing xyz it was always about how you're seen you know whereas boys could go out without even telling their parents where they're going doesn't matter what time they come home because at the end of the day they're not holding like the way that women are the honor of the family um especially not in their sexuality you know and that's what it comes down to really it's about sexuality and you know and and as women we should not express that sexuality we should definitely not enact it in any way 
And if we do it within the strict institution of marriage, and we can't be trusted, or at least the society can't be trusted with us because men are over-sexualized in, a, you know, in the kind of, especially if you look at some of the these kind of contexts, you know, I mean, I'm making big generalizations here, but, you know, if men are over-sexualized, if you just look at a lot of the Bollywood culture that I was growing up with, for example, and women are not supposed to show any sexualization, what you get in is, in, is an imbalance. So all of a sudden, women's... Um, girls young girls growing up not only can they not be trusted in going out but also they can't be trusted being around men because men are going to be over sexualized and they're going to attack the women it's just given and if anybody has any experience going around especially in north india on some of the streets i mean harassment is considered normal it's called eve teasing it's not even called abuse or assault it's called eve teasing as if it's just some game you know so yeah i've kind of gone off on a on a bit of a tangent, but you know, this we've kind of gone into the deep end here, haven't we? But that's a little bit about what I've experienced, what I've seen, what I've reflected on quite deeply. I know that this is quite a sensitive topic because there's a balance between the Indian culture and being proud of my heritage and being proud of the, but also sharing honestly about the limitations and the experiences growing up. And I don't know, from my experience of the Indian communities is that it's not spoken about. Everything's kind of hidden and protected and not in the open. And it's a lot about image. What's your view on that? And why do you think that is? Yeah, I think, you know, when we look at our families and we look at our communities, I think it's really important not only to see our families and in isolation, we have to look at society and we have to look at history. In our close-knit communities, it must be very scary for families, especially when you go abroad and you're living in a kind of close-knit community outside of India, perhaps in some ways, like us, we've, we've been brought up in the Indian diaspora. What is culturally acceptable and what's culturally not acceptable? And one of the worst things I think that families experience is when they're talked about behind their back and this is that feeling of shame this is that feeling of social that social emotion of shame and if you have been trying to protect yourself from blame behind your back and then you and then you have children then you want to control how your children behave as well you know so it the idea of image I don't know I guess it's um it's again about shame really yeah and it's like everyone within that system is impacted including including what you shared previously uh, you know even the men everyone is uh, inside some kind of cultural box of how we should behave inside a particular system or way and that has limitations and how do you think that I mean the men are also impacted by this dynamic your viewpoint on how they are impacted in this. Yeah, I mean, you know, as Indian women, we are conditioned to behave in a very limited, limited set of boundaries, you know, and of course, where things are changing, you know, as women are being educated and achieving economic empowerment, you know, many things are changing. Uh, but, you know, they change generation by generation. I just want to, I just want to qualify that, you know, and I am speaking as somebody that is educated, you know, is independent, you know, have ha I have no lack of freedom in my life right now. 
but I've gone and I fought for it. I fought really hard for this, you know. And um, so I've fought really hard for my for my freedom. And what I've noticed is that this this journey I've been on, and looking at the inequalities that I, you know, had to face growing up, not just in the Indian community, but also for my race as being Indian from non-Indians, uh, what I see is that everybody's affected. And with, within the Indian community, I find that the pressure often put on the sons, you know, Indian families really want to have their sons. They will keep having daughters until they have a son, or sometimes they will, you know, go to more extreme measures to have a son. And then once sons are born, they're also under pressure to continue the bloodline, to marry who their parents want them to marry, to take care of their parents, to hold that responsibility. And so the boys are conditioned just as much as the girls. And although with the girls we have a certain set of, you know, experiences, I think it would be really interesting to understand, you know, the boys. And of course, on some levels, we see boys are over, you know, overfed in terms, in lots of different ways, over celebrated, portrayed as the heroes, you know, portrayed as um, superior to women, as the breadwinners and all of those kinds of things. And at the same time, I've seen some horror stories. I've seen some real horror stories of of um, Indian men not being able to marry who they want to marry, not being able to have equal partners at home, you know, suffering from the weight of the responsibility that's put on them, you know? So how would you feel if someone saw you doing X, Y, Z? So it's, it's about the way you are perceived. And what I have observed with a lot of, you know, some of the sad stories I've seen where parents put so much pressure on their children, both their sons and their daughters, but I've seen it also on sons, is, you know, pressure to marry because of the expectations on them. And it's a kind of guilt-tripping or emotional blackmail. You know, you're the son, you're expected to take care of us and you're expected to, you know, bring home a wife, a dutiful wife, and, you know, continue the bloodline. So it's a very heavy heavy burden yeah it's very it's a very heavy burden yeah and 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 the other side of it is we love you so much we've given you everything that you've wanted as our son you know we've treated you you know better than our daughters right not in all families but you know look at all this you know you're going to take all of our property everything is yours now you give us what we want and that is a heavy burden you know whereas you know with a lot of us women us girls, you know, we're going to get married off anyway, right? We're, we're pariah, we're, we belong to another family. So that's what I've seen in terms of difference. And what you said, Bavi, about, you know, growing up in, in Uganda, you know, sometimes I wonder about whether our families and communities feel the additional and extra pressure of, like you said, conserving that culture. But what they end up doing is conserving and freezing a culture from whenever they left India. But culture is never frozen it's dynamic it's moving all the time and evolving but um so then that whole thing about image and how people are seen is very sociological you know but you know we, especially in the migrant diaspora 
where you've come abroad and someone is doing better than another family and it becomes a bit competitive and it's a bit like keeping up with the Joneses, right? And also um, one of the other things that you mentioned is it's all in context, you know, like we are sharing from our experience being brought up in the UK as Indian women, you know, someone being born in just a generation ago in India and Bombay would have a completely different experience. And as we move forward with generations, things are progressing, hopefully. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember once going to an Indian wedding in the UK and uh, in the toilet, I met, you know, in the bathroom, I met another woman. She was my age and she had uh, two daughters at that time. And I said, oh, that's so cute. Where, you know, where are you, you know, where are you coming from? She said, oh, we're just here from Delhi for the wedding. And I said, oh, how, are you going to have any more children or something? I asked. And we started talking about the girls. And she said, oh, no, two is enough. But I said, aren't you getting pressure from your family to have a son? She said, you know what the interest is? She said, it's funny that you say that. In Delhi, no one's ever asked me if I'm going to have another baby to have a son. But since I've been in London, everybody's asked me, when am I going to have the next child? Because I have to have a son. And I was like, really? She said, yeah, nobody's ever said that to me in Delhi. But in London, I've been asked this question 10 times by different people in the community, in the Indian community. And I said, that says a lot. Says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. You know, because in India, they don't have to freeze their culture. The culture is the culture and it's moving, you know. Whereas in the diaspora, there's a pressure amongst the community to not lose touch with our heritage, to not lose touch with our culture. And, you know, and there's a tightness that's put around us. And in some ways, you know, even though I was growing up, in the 80s as a child, the 80s and the 90s, I felt as if, you know, I could have been growing up, you know, in the Indian 60s and 70s with the kind of conservatism that, you know, experienced. And your journey that you share about really fighting for your freedom and breaking out of that, can you share anything about this journey that you took? Mm, My parents never directly put any pressure on me to get married. I think they had other concerns. My parents also were incredibly supportive of me getting as educated as I wanted to be. You know, those were things that were very clear in my family. Um, But there were other pressures, you know, there were other boundaries which I needed to fight against. And I realized from a really young age that my ticket to freedom was going to be my education. And so I just studied really hard. And I just thought, you know, if I could make my parents and my extended family proud of me by ticking all of these boxes, (laughs) you know, there'll come a time, you know, where I could maybe do more of what I want. But I think what actually happened was that, you know, circumstances became such that I, that I was being too limited. And I think that had things not been as strict as they were, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have had to crack the box open to get out. So, for example, you could put anyone in a box, right, especially when you're bringing your children up. And if you bring them up in a big enough box, they can give, they can be, you know, and I'm, it's probably quite, it's, everything we're talking about, Bobby, is pretty controversial, right? But I mean, the way I see, the way I see a lot of Indian families with their sons, for example, 
is that they give them a big box to grow up in. And in that box, they can put lots of toys for them, right? And they can treat them really well. But at the end of the day, they have to stay in that box. And it's still a box. It's still a box, right? <laughs> and there's something about being put in a box that's too small. And I was put in a box that was too small. And then I had no choice but to break out of it. And once I broke out of it, the world was my oyster. And the other part of this, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what your experience of this has been too, but the other part of it is also growing up in, in the UK and facing a lot of racial marginalization. And it was pretty in my face from school, uh, racial bullying at school, to growing up and you know trying to break through with my career. I faced a lot of racial discrimination too, to the point where I just thought this is ridiculous, you know, if I'm not a if I can't take part here, I'll just go somewhere else and find my way somewhere else. So, yeah, I'm curious to know how how you've found it growing up in the UK and what was your experience, I guess, growing up as a girl, and when did you start realizing that life might be different? Your expect the expectations of you might be different because you're a girl as opposed to a boy, when did you start realizing what it meant to be a girl? I can relate a lot to what you share is that as a child, it's not so, you know, I was free and given a, a lot of love. I had a lot of love in my family as well in my childhood, very protected. And also this kind of going to a very British school and then coming home and being in a very Indian family. So that was confusing. And I do remember points where I couldn't make friends because of my language. So that was a point of confusion, for sure. I think the turning point for me was when I became a teenager. And I know that teenage times is difficult for everybody and challenging. For me, definitely noticing my freedoms being curtailed, feeling shame for, you know, becoming a woman. And I think... My teenage years was the most impactful, you know, and limiting, I felt, for me. We were financially very, my, my dad went bankrupt. And so there was a lot of kind of financial pressures as well in my teenage times. So I think the financial pressures plus the cultural conversations plus the fear, there was so much going on within that dynamic. A lot of the work that I did in my 20s, I was looking at my inner child, you know, healing the inner child. And it was only recently that I started to look at healing the inner teenager in me and really looking at uncovering some of the trauma, the baggage that happened as a teenager. Mm -hmm. But like you say, these are all very controversial topics. They are very con. I mean, I guess they need to be handled really sensitively because everybody's had a different experience. And, you know, and we're talking about something very personal and intimate, but I because we're talking about our families. But at the same time, we're not talking about our families. You know, we're talking about the culture. And I think the Indi I'm, I'm also, there was a time, Bobby, there was a time where I rejected my Indianness. You know, there was a time where I went through an identity crisis and um, I hated, I hated what I felt was this oppression on me. 
And then I came back round and I feel like I'm very proud of my Indian heritage, but I have no blindness towards its shadows. And I can take part in the culture and be part of the change in the culture, but I'm not going to be a defender of the culture because that's just being like a kind of nationalist, you know, fundamentalist. I believe that cultures are dynamic. And, you know, when we look back into our mythology and Hindu mythology, look back into our religion, you know, you see, you see the path has been there for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, Hinduism is considered to be one of the oldest religions in the world. And many people will point to all the Hindu goddesses in the pantheon and say, look, you know, our religion is equal towards men and women. But actually, when you look at the practice of the religion, the feminine has been vilified. And there are still groups of practitioners that practice more traditional forms, uh, not conservative, not orthodox, but the other kind of traditional forms of Hinduism where they, they worship the feminine divine. But the feminine divine has been, you know, hidden and oppressed. And, you know, that's why you have priests that are all men. That's why you have, you know, practices that can only be rituals that can only be performed by men. That's why when somebody is, you know, in our you know, culture, when somebody passes away, it's a son that can do the final rites, not the daughter. And the daughters are often, you know, hidden away from a lot of the rituals, apart from when they come as a consort, as the wife of. And I'm not saying that there aren't lots of rituals and practices in Hinduism that are led by women, but they're not being shown to us. Mm. You know, the domain of the woman is in the home. The domain of the woman is in doing her own practices in the home. And therefore her place is in the home. But what if she wants to go out of the home and do other things? You know, like you have stories in the mythology, but then you also have stories like, you know, Sita and people like that who, you know, were exiled from from the kingdom after coming back to, you know, Yudhya because she was, you know, she had been, you know, kidnapped by Ravan. And so she lived on Lanka for however many years. And when Rama came home to Ayodhya, she you know, they didn't trust her because she she had been kidnapped. So she was considered, you know, impure. And the the strength of their character is um, is through their forbearance. You know, forbearance is supposed to be the character of a strong, conservatively speaking, you know, Indian woman. She needs to forbear the suffering. That sounds like a very patriarchal story to me, <laughs> just from... It is. It's all about the patriarchy. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't get more patriarchal than the practice of orthodox Hindu. I mean, this is something that perhaps uh, <laughs> we're delving into areas where people will get very defensive, Bobby. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very, very defensive. But we're talking about orthodox Hinduism. It's very patriarchal, incredibly patriarchal. And patriarchal doesn't mean that... It's men against women. Patriarchy can sit just as much in within women as it can within men. 
and people can be opposed to a patriarchal position and they can be more men than women even. So this isn't about, you know, often when we talk about inequality, you know, often when we talk about gender inequality, we're often only talking to the women. But actually gender inequality is about the inequality of all genders. So why are we only speaking to one gender? You know, why are we only having a conversation amongst women? Is this a women? Is this a women's conversation or is it a gender conversation? If it's a gender, then everybody should be involved because gender inequality involves everybody. So, you know, patriarchal systems have an impact on everybody, whatever gender they come from, you know? And so, and I think that's really important to remember that when people often say things like, you know, how can she say this? She's a woman. You know, I'm thinking just because somebody is a woman, it doesn't mean that she doesn't, she's not patriarchal or she's not discriminating against other women, you know, like, it's like saying, I can't be racist. I'm Indian. Well, what Indians can't be racist. You know, like anybody can, everybody's racist. This racism is not allocated in one race. Right. So I think that's very important to remember. It's like, where is the power and uh, where does the power sit? Yeah. And these, these topics are sensitive and controversial and may bring up a lot of different reactions. And uh, I, I wonder why that is. What, why is there this defensiveness in our culture? It's the nationality, it's the pride. I wonder where that comes from. I mean, I think that Indian culture is, has provided so much richness to the world in terms of the food, the music, the yoga, the language. You know, it's one of the oldest Indian, you know, civilizations are one of the oldest civilizations they go back you know Hindus is one of the oldest religions and it's you know I think Indian culture is the heritage of the world in many ways and there's a lot to be proud of right I think even modern Indian culture there's a lot to be proud of and I think that we can be proud of all of it and if we're going to take part in our Indian culture, we've also got to be part of the, the change and the evolution. And I think people may get defensive if they feel that we might be bringing, again, you know, shame to our Indian culture by talking about, you know, by uh, airing our dirty laundry. But I think that we have a right to talk about all of this just as much as the next person <laughs> to use some West London lingo, <laughs> you know, just is we've got as much right to talk about all of this because this has been our experience, right? Yeah. Mm. But do you see yourself as British or not? Or British something else? When I talk to people, I say I'm an East African Indian born in UK. Mm. Yeah. I usually say I'm a, well, I definitely am British. Uh-huh. I'm clearly, that's what I associate with. So, and a Brit, a British person can be of you know any race. Mm-hmm. I might say Brit Asian or Brit Indian, to then differentiate myself from kind of let's say an English British white English person. Yeah, yeah. And I think that also needs to be respected. You know, if somebody's of English heritage, you know, and or Irish or Welsh or Scottish heritage, you know, whatever that is, that also needs to be respected. And there's a difference. We can't deny the difference between us. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I have, I'm an Asian, I'm an Indian, it's different, I'm, I have a different culture. Mm. But Britishness is more inclusive, I find, mm. you know. It's, it's just interesting, culture is fascinating like it that, is. right? Yeah. We're influenced, and this is all our heritage, this is part of our heritage, our Britishness is part of our heritage. I mean, but I do think we need to differentiate. But it's interesting, because you've got your Ugandan culture in there. And I think the experience of the Indian diaspora is unique. I think the Indian diaspora is probably the biggest diaspora in the world. And we have our own experience and it and it's still Indian. It's still Indian. It's still Indian. It's Indian Indian, you know, it's 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 mixed with other cultures for sure. But it doesn't mean, you know, it's a different experience, a different Indian diaspora culture. So Well, Arthi, this has been a very amazing uh dialogue and I'm sure it would have brought up many different thoughts viewpoints people agreeing people disagreeing so I welcome if anyone would like to email me your thoughts or viewpoints I'd love to hear them yes uh, and I can share them with you thank you for inviting me it's been a it's, it's such a sensitive subject and I think that it's important to talk about it and there's just so much still that we could talk about and things might have come out in you know in certain ways that we didn't mean but we don't mean to offend anybody but we need to talk about it and you know step on all those minds and so that we can have a conversation and that's the spirit in which in spirit in which we've that you've invited me and I've been very grateful to take up this yeah this honor and space thank you sure thank you Arti. Hello friend, thank you for listening. If this podcast has sparked a flame in you, I encourage you to take the first step and download our free Ikigai journal or join the community at kanagarajourneys.com. Also, I invite you to share this podcast with a friend if you feel it can benefit them. Using the wisdom of the Tao, the Enneagram, meditation techniques and so much more, I share the tools that have made a profound impact on my own journey and invite experts and high performers to share their secrets. I wish for you love, compassion and peace and I look forward to connecting with you on the next episode.